0: Today, I'm, I'm really geeked up for several reasons. One is my son got married yesterday. Uh, it happened. That was the whole thing. Yeah, it was funny. At, at the rehearsal dinner, everybody kept on saying, we were all shocked Sam made it to this because this girl's awesome. Um, but my, my life story, my life story, you know, guys, if you've been around here, you know I've worked at 10,000 different places. Between call centers call centers with a master of divinity it was good. it was really good for me, you know, uh, getting hung up on all the time you know um, i 've done all kinds of bizarre things, and yesterday was a moment where I was performing this wedding, and I was standing here right here 's my son, my daughter 's walking up the aisle as one of the bridesmaids, my other son is in the wedding party here 's all my parents and families and all. And I thought, for a second, I thought, am I dead? Because it was this picture of heaven. But here's the thing. The life that God has given me is very, very fruitful. And I've resisted him almost the whole time getting here. Why? Because my vision of what life was supposed to look like, looked like, and this is going to sound so trite, but power, fame. You'd all know my name you know, I mean, it, 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 these cultural narratives, right? And the Lord just said, oh, that's really cool, man. I'd rather you work at a call center and die. And, and like, you hate me, God. And there's these moments where I can look at my life and say, I don't deserve a minute of this. And I don't know how we got here, but it was an act of mercy an act of God's kindness. And so today I'm really excited because we have a guest speaker all the way from South Africa. Um, he, I got to be honest, he didn't come just for Believer's Church, though I'm sure he would have. Yeah, yeah, right. He's going to be speaking on Tuesday morning at the Governor's Prayer Breakfast. They invited uh, Pete to come Last I think it was last year, yeah, I was at that one with Pete Gregg, and then they needed another Pete, so they got Pete Portal. Um, He's been part of the 24-7 movement for a long, long time. He's been in South Africa, Cape Town, uh, a township called Mannenberg, which is really intense, a really intense place to live. Um, But what has caught my eye with Pete is this book called uh, How to Be Unsuccessful. I love it. Uh, I read it because Pete and I have been in the same room for probably 20 years at 24/7 events, but we never really got to hang out all that much. Um, but I thought, okay, Pete just wrote this book; he's going to be in town. Thought it'd be fun to have. Him. I read the. Re, I, this is how much I like this book. I bought it for both of my kids for well, the two kids who said they would read. <laughs> I said, I'm not spending the money, <laughs> and Sam's like, I'm not going to read. I was like, okay. I'm not, I'm not buying it then. So <laughs> I bought this for Christmas for them uh, just because I think Pete is saying something that sounds simple, but it's actually prophetic. And we as God's people have to hear this. So will you guys join me in welcoming Pete to address us now on this very thing?
1: Good morning, Believers Church. How are we doing? It's wonderful when a pastor gets up, confesses uh, so honestly his own struggle with where he saw himself and everyone resonates and relates, because that's really my story as well. And I think if we're really candid, we will acknowledge that God really wants to mess us up and waste our lives. If we know that he is good, we will trust the process. And I want to talk to you all this morning about calling and obedience. It's right there. Now, um, who am I? My name is Pete. I'm not from these here parts, as you may be able to discern. I am British originally, but have lived in Cape Town, South Africa, for the last 15 years. Was that a little whoop for Cape Town? Someone in the house? Um and um you know so I'm from England the, the the sort of place some of you might know where we have a million different ways of saying no without saying no so if ever a british person answers a question that you ask them with the following oh that sounds lovely <laughs> why don't you circle back in a month um what an interesting opportunity I'm actually buckling down my priorities at the moment. Or, oh, that's so kind of you. All of that is just code for no. (laughs) Stop bothering me. Or maybe you've heard the alternative nursery rhyme that we teach our children. If you're happy and you know it, go away. (laughs) That's where I've come from. And South Africa is just squeezing some of the uh, dry, pessimistic British out of me. I um, am a husband to Sarah and a father to Simtandile and Luca. That is us. We don't dress like that typically. That was at a wedding. Uh, We're usually a bit more casual than that. Um, And we are part of leading a 24-7 prayer community called Tree of Life. And we do church on a Sunday, for sure, but we tend to focus more on Monday to Saturday. We, um, <laughs> Sunday is chaos. It's kind of, for, our, our gathering is full of recovering addicts and some current addicts, or perpetrators of crime and victims of crime, or people who have come out of Islam, or people who are still in Islam, a couple of ADHD kids running around, and a little smattering of Christians somewhere. Looking around, much like this, actually. Uh, uh, (Laughter) <laughs> um, And if you don't know Cape Town, I will give you a brief, deep dive. Cape Town is beautiful. Natural beauty, however, is juxtaposed with unnatural segregation. Uh, So Cape Town is, wait for it, the most racially segregated city in South Africa, which itself is the most economically unequal country on earth. Okay, I once heard someone say the church is a bit like a swimming pool. All the noise comes from the shallow end. I thought I'd get more of a laugh, fair enough. Like, wait for the penny to drop. But <laughs> we find ourselves right in the deep end of socio-political, historic, racial pain, division, and inequality. Uh, Cape Town has just uh, come second in the world for best cities ever. Uh, literally, a couple of months ago, New York came first, yawn, boring, fine. But Cape Town... <laughs> Cape Town came second, but at the same time, we're in the top 10 cities in the world per homicides per 100,000 people. And in fact, the number of murders in Cape Town last year surpassed the number of murders in the UK by five times. It is a city with deep, deep pain. It's got some of the most glorious examples of first world luxury dotted along the Atlantic seaboard, and at the same time, some of the worst examples of third world poverty. It's a city marked by glitter and ghetto. And we've made our home, Sarah and I, in a community called Mannenberg. Mannenberg is 20 kilometers east of the city center, and Mannenberg shouldn't exist. It was created by the apartheid government. Apartheid is Afrikaans, the uh, 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 one of the languages in Cape Town, and it, and it means separateness. The white supremacist government back in the 60s created Manenberg on the myth of white supremacy, forcibly removed those people of color at the foot of Table Mountain from their homes, bulldozed communities, and put them in dormitory-style housing 20 kilometers east of the city center. Right? And so today, gangs as a collective trauma response to forced removals prevail. Gangs are not the problem in Cape Town, they're a large number of people's very desperate attempt at a solution to the agony of living on the margins of a society that continues to perpetuate racial inequality. And Manenberg's my favorite place I've ever lived. Sometimes the army is sent in to keep the peace. Other times we pray night and day, 168 hours of unceasing prayer for the peace of Manenberg, and we see some remarkable, beautiful answers to prayer. And a lot of the time we don't. But our life for Sarah and I is very simple. We live in Manenberg. We invite gangsters and addicts to come and live with us we introduce them to Jesus, the Holy Spirit fills them, and then they go and tell others how to get free. And in fact, in 2019, we had people knocking on our door uh, uh, and saying, bags packed in tears, saying, I'm in a gang, I'm on drugs, I heard I can get free if I come and live with you. And we had to turn them away because we had no more room. But we then bought a block of flats across the road. We've done it up, and we were able to double our capacity. So at the moment, we have a home for young men getting free from gangs and drugs, and we also have a home for abused women and their children to get free and learn to parent. And that is our church community. Now, people tell us we shouldn't live where we live. Good, well-meaning Christians. You know the type. <laughs> But we believe if Jesus lived in Cape Town, he would live in Mannenberg. Do you remember what was said about Nazareth? Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? We're like, hang about. Pretty sure we know how that ended, right? <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting for a moment Jesus' second coming will take place in Mannenberg, but what I am saying is that if he lived in Cape Town, he would live in Mannenberg or somewhere like it. And so we've chosen to live there amongst not the, un, not the voiceless, because I don't believe there's a, such a thing as the voiceless, but should we call it as Arundhati Roy, the novelist, said, the deliberately silenced and the preferably unheard. Now I've got a little three, four minute video that I wanted to show you of what life looks like for us in manenberg as a 24-7 prayer community. So I wonder if we could play that video now.
2: People say community yeah, they will never be peace and you know, harmony but I think if everyone would receive what we receive I think a lot would change, everything would change, people would change, the community would be different and I think they will be peace you know, and harmony.
3: With the, the post-war everyone was just dumped here on this piece of land and then were to like, sort themselves out. Obviously families were broken up and People were feeling unsafe. The idea of manibul, it was created to hold or gather the unwanted. And that's how that gangster started up. It started out like just we're protecting our space and ourselves because we're feeling vulnerable. And then it started to evolve into this thing where it's now our and our descent. The fighting in between. Things were taken from you violently and you were put here with nothing. And then the drugs came in and it's like, yes, let's just medicate this pain.
2: Like, growing up in it's challenging. Like, it's so easy to have my make every day. Like, being exposed from my young age to <laughs> gangsters, people stabbing other. people running with guns in your own.
3: I didn't have a parent that was there for me like I needed them to be. I went to go look for their parent's love elsewhere, yeah, and that made me, like, end up in addiction. Crystal meth. um I just smoke when I was 12 years old. I wanted to be loved, I wanted to find out to get loved, so I look for love in the wrong places. There's a lot of things that I needed freedom from and healing from. That day, I saw my father's tears for the first time in my whole life. First time I saw him cry for me because he wanted me to, I could say, do we need to take you out? Or can this really happen inside of this place? Inside the hurt, inside the pain, inside of all the stuff. Can beautiful stuff happen? Can beautiful stuff spring up? We want to see a community change, but not change just to get by, change that is rooted. rooted in love. I felt a love I never experienced in my life, the way these people took me in. They didn't see the, the evil, they see good in me, and I couldn't see that. A family that loves one another and supports one another in just any situation. Seeing, like, what community actually looks like, they actually like family to me. Living in community with people and with the girls, and they're... They've chosen to come here because they want to try and change their life and they want to
1: heal and they go to the hard places. I think living here with them, I can't not do the same. But I also have to lead by example and
3: also go to the hard places for me. The whole community, they have really pushed up my confidence. I have confidence now that I've never had.
2: I think i they've still been out there or Dead by now. If Tree of Life wouldn't have been here and have their doors open for me to come and stay and receive the love that they had for me.
3: We just want to see people grow, grow from where they've been into something different. Jesus would be there. Jesus would would definitely be there when it's hurting and there's, there's no money or there's violence against women and children or just young men being taken out of the innocence. There's a place that Jesus wants to be at. This is a beautiful place.
1: Just see God so much in that that
3: his desire for the world was that it was everyone together moving together.
1: So you tell me, can anything good come out of Manenberg? <laughs> We've been at it for 15 years. I moved into Mannenberg aged 23. And it's slow, and it's painful, and it's deep and glorious. That said, there's nothing like being part of a small group of people struggling to affect lasting change in a community known for its violence and addiction. In a city of spatial injustice, to feel as though you're not really succeeding at much. The inner voice of the accuser, what have you got to show for your life? Anyone struggle with similar thoughts? We know Guile does. Anyone else? <laughs> what have you got to show for your life? Are you successful? Define success. Is it quantitative? Or is it Qualitative? right now in your life, do you feel successful? Do you feel that you were more successful 10 years ago? Are you holding out that in 10 years you'll finally get to that point of success that you dream of? Well, honestly, I wrote a book called How to Be Unsuccessful, The Unlikely Guide to Human Flourishing, because confession, I'm utterly insecure and I'm a complete fraud. But, like the sunglasses salesman and a Turkish beach back 20 years ago when I went on holiday to Turkey, and I said to him, looking at these glasses he was selling that were called Ockles, I said to him, um, Oh, so are these genuine? Are these real, authentic? He goes, My friend, they are genuinely fake. <laughs> and I thought to him, Ah, oh, that's not a bad way of expressing it. Listen, guys, I'm a fraud, but at least I'm a genuine fraud. I'm a sinner, but I'm a beloved sinner. And that makes all the difference. And so today we're going to look at calling and obedience. What does that mean? And how, rather than thinking, oh, goodness, so Pete's saying that if I want to live a life that's worth living, I need to move to Mannheimberg. Not necessarily, maybe. We're looking for an ops and finance team director. So just saying, anyone who wants to uproot your life, come follow Jesus with us and make a measurable difference in the poor and the oppressed, just come see me. (laughs) But number one, calling emerges from stopping. Thomas Aquinas, 751 years ago, wrote a classic, verse, uh, uh, quote here. He said, three things are necessary for the salvation of humanity. what we To know what we ought to believe, what we ought to desire, and what we ought to do. Believe, desire, do. Isn't it amazing that like, Aquinas was actually quite good into marketing slogans all those years ago? That's the sort of thing you would pay thousands of dollars for a New York-based, best city in the world, New York-based company to come up with. And he, Aquinas, if you don't know who he is, he was a Catholic theologian, philosopher, one of the most uh, uh, influential writers of the medieval period and spent a lot of his time trying to apply Aristotle's ethics to his Christian worldview. Now that might all sound like jargon. Essentially what Aquinas was doing was that he engaged with the voices of culture and found out how they related to the unchanging truth that Jesus is Lord. And he realized that we need to know what we believe. Because what we believe spills into what we will desire. And what we desire will spill into right action. Right belief feeds godly desire. Godly desire is the good soil in which calling grows best. Okay? And so we need to understand, first of all, and especially in our kind of industrial, kind of capitalist, go-go-go society, that the world will simply not be saved by our frantic activity. First, we need to stop. Breathe. Look around. Because otherwise, we may well find out that we have been motivated by our own geltingsbedoofness. No, I didn't just sneeze. Anyone speak German? Put this in your pipe and smoke it. Geltingsbedoofness, the need to be seen as worthwhile and valuable in the eyes of others. We need a sentence for it. The Germans have one word for it. Here's the thing. The world will applaud you if you can show numbers, if you make some noise, and if honestly you exhibit a degree of narcissism in your calling. Noise, numbers, and narcissism. It's like the unholy trinity that the world puts a spotlight on. We're nodding because we know it's true. If we can add a bunch of zeros to pretty much anything we're doing, then guess what? You're in the 30 under 30s category. You're a mover and a shaker. You'll get some uh, 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 some airtime and some traction in mainstream culture. And yet, have to think about this. To define or to uh, justify your life through successful endeavors is the exact antithesis to the kingdom of God. Did you hear that? The world is crying out for us to define ourselves and justify ourselves through what we've got to show for ourselves. And Jesus isn't. You might want your life to count. Think of it another way. So if you find yourself wanting your life to count, maybe you pick a cause to fight, okay? And... and Typically, this is what happens. If you can frame that cause as the defining cause of a generation, whether that's ending human trafficking or funding donkey sanctuaries, I don't know who who decides, but if you can brand it well, and if you're uh, uh, able to make the vision make sense, it's a good thing to do. It can gain some online traction and look successful. It offers all sorts of buzzwords like scalable innovations and replicable strategies and win-wins. Right, It seems to create unemployment out of nothing. You get a celebrity endorser. You've got slick online media content. My goodness, you look successful. And the problem is, if the founding motivation is not God's unique calling on your life, you have literally fallen for the myth of noise, numbers, and narcissism. And you are living in Gelting's bedoofness and not in the calling and obedience of God. First, we need to Stop. Only when we stop can we discern whether or not our deepest desires match God's. James K.A. Smith, an amazing American theologian, wrote this. He said, Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants. Do you want what God wants? I'm going to preach at this or speak at this breakfast on Tuesday. And it's got me thinking, do my prayers fuel my politics or do my politics fuel my prayers? Do you want what God wants? To hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all and in all. This vision where God is all and in all has a name and it is the kingdom of God. calling emerges from stopping, but it also emerges from story. Alistair McIntyre wrote in the 80s that we can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? Put in a slightly different way, the story you live in is the story you will live out Okay, let me give you an example. If, if the story that you live in is that the world is a bad, scary place, then the story you live out will likely be paranoia and fear. And your behaviors will probably be fairly addicted to watching the 24-7 news cycle and online content, which actually feeds off fear. Or another way, if, you, uh, if the story you live in is that you're a self-made individual and you don't need help from anybody... Well, then the story you live out will be one of pride and individualism. Honestly, you'll probably have a fairly elevated view of self, and you may well struggle to form vulnerable relationships. Can we see that the story we live in, we live out? And yet Psalm 107, verse 1 and 2 says this, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. We did that during worship, didn't we? Wasn't that beautiful? This is what Americans teach me as a Brit. I go, oh, Lord, you are really rather, rather wonderful. Um, thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate your goodness. And you're like, Jesus, you are good. We praise you. And I have to really kind of, yeah, no, it's right. <laughs> he really is. God is so good, he's worth raising my voice slightly. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> Ooh, who would have thought? Who would have thought? How improper. But it says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And then it says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. So we have a choice, believers. Will we be formed by the story that culture tells us? Or will we be formed by the story that God tells us? Because the spirit of the age that we're living in will shift and change. That's called the zeitgeist. What is acceptable now won't be acceptable in the future or wasn't acceptable previously. Culture is basically what we allow and what we celebrate. And that is always changing. But the story of the believers and followers of Jesus Christ will never change. And you know what? Each faithful life in this church... to add another chapter onto the 2,000-year chapters that has been being written by the church over and over again. You might think you have not much to show for your life, and yet, if you are faithful to God's unique calling on your life, whatever that looks like, you are adding a chapter of glory to the story of Jesus working on earth. And so whether you're a believer in the underground church in Iran, where the greatest revival is happening in the world at the moment, apparently, or whether you are in the ganglands of Cape Town, or whether you are in the suburbs of Tulsa or Owasso, I love just saying that word Owasso, (laughs) you get to add your chapter. So let me ask you again, what is the primary story that forms you? Is it culture or kingdom? Because the story you live in is the story you'll live out. I hope you'll appreciate that not only do I have three main points, but all of the operative words begin with an S-T. Let's just worship. The Lord is good. Alliteration. calling emerges from stability. Ronald Rollheiser, Ronald Rollheiser, that's another good word to say. He said, deeper than our wanderlust and our desire for adventure is our desire to find our way back home. Ultimately, we want the adventure only so we can savor it and tell it around the fireplace at home. I'm, I'm moved and struck, Guile, by what you were saying about your son marrying yesterday. Ultimately, you want to savor it and tell that story around the fireplace at home. That is stability. That's what Benedict added to the rule of Benedictine monks who were, who were bound by poverty, chastity, and obedience. And Benedict added a fourth vow of stability, which is essentially nailing your feet to the ground. Rootedness, belonging, home. And in an increasingly globalized world of hypermobility, stability might be one of the most subversive things we can choose because it's pretty much the exact opposite of the curated online content we're scrolling through daily on an hourly basis. Anyone have a problem with doom scrolling, comparing yourself to others? I'm unbelievably spiritual. So a couple of days ago, a couple of people laughed at that. Others are nodding quietly. Yeah, he, see, he seems like he's unbelievably spiritual. I'm not. Um, this is how spiritual I am, I thought, oh, it's Lent. Let me let me delete Instagram to show my consecration to the Lord. Right? <laughs> Welcome to the future. But only, be, only because I found myself, I don't know if you do this, and please don't put your hands up, because it's a bit humiliating, but I'd scroll through Instagram thinking I should really be curating some slick online content for people to, oh, I don't know, read my book or give money to Tree of Life or something. And uh, primary motivations right there i've just betrayed myself and but all i was doing is going through online and just comparing myself being like oh i wish i was as good as them wish i was better than them (laughs) and them Uh, you know and and my entire life was just oriented around this translocal content that you couldn't actually be rooted anywhere and at the end of the day right Online influence is is essentially a numbers game. There's rarely any depth to it, just tweetable soundbites and curated non-reality. But you know what? Spiritual maturity and authority is not a numbers game. If you concentrate on the depth of your life, allow God to watch out for the breadth. Because others can bubble bounce around the world following the Holy Spirit to the next revival looking for the next move of God, tick-tocking it, here I am, maybe I should do that, here I am at the next move of God in believers, amen? Amen. (laughs) But nailing our feet to the ground, committing to a particular place and people, plodding. Have you learned to plod? Someone once told me... um, you know what, Pete, this is when Mannenberg and Tree of Life was just, it was a real tough time, I was going through a real tough time, and he said, um, and it was the most loving thing he could have said, or trying to, I think utterly misguided, actually, in retrospect, but he said, um, Pete, God doesn't require you to sow into concrete. And I get what he's saying, you know, like, don't waste your time on the hard ground type thing, but Before we renovated the block of flats that we grew, Crew 62, the home for men coming out of gangs and drugs in, there was the most remarkable tomato plant that was growing up through the cracks in the backyard. And I remember, the father said to me, do you remember that word somebody gave you? A seed fell here and started a tomato plant, and now it's growing through the concrete now listen, the tomatoes look pretty gnarly. <laughs> Hadn't been watered in a bit. But I wonder if those tomatoes could speak. What would they think of the plump, juicy, red, overwatered supermarket tomatoes they see on the shelf? I think those tomatoes that have grown through the concrete would have a story to tell. And so I really think we may be called to sow into concrete. Because at the end of the day, visible fruit does not make us successful. A consecrated obedience to the call of God is the only measure of success. Now, what makes me think that? Have a look at Jeremiah. Some of you are like, phew, a quote from Scripture. I thought he was just going to come up with... Non-scriptural quotes. Right, here we go. Jeremiah 1, 4 to 10. The reformed evangelicals are breathing a sigh of relief. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So far, so good. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I don't know how to speak, I'm too young. Wah, wah. Okay, but the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and to whatever I command you. Don't be afraid of them, for I'm with you and I'll rescue you, declares the Lord. And then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I put words in your mouth. I appoint you today over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy, overthrow, build and plant. This is the word of the Lord. So the first chapter of Jeremiah is an interesting one for us to consider as we think about the cost of following our calling and also how God makes that known to us. Verse 5 is the kind of word that many of us would relish, I'm sure. It's affirmation that we've been set apart by God. I'm God's favorite. Well, it proves it here to cities, to travel to nations and cities and give them dramatic words of destiny and probably get all sorts of airline upgrades, such as the favor of God on our life, amen? We don't suffer with the hoi polloi at the back of a plane in cattle class. We are living comfort plus, people. Now, the next verse, Jeremiah gives his answer. And we're like, come on, Jeremiah. And he goes, oh, Sovereign lord. Oh, no, I'm not into it. No, thanks. Isn't this interesting? His initial response to God's prophetic word over his life is not, okay, right, let me set up a financial giver's newsletter and a ministry website. Let me get hashtag set apart trending. (laughs) Yeah, this could work. No, no, no. He's petrified by what God's told him. There's not a hint of Gelting's bedoofness in Jeremiah. There's a reverent fear. He recognizes his weakness and he protests, but pivotally he keeps listening. And God gives him a slap and a hug all at once. God basically says, grow up, Jeremiah. You're about to learn that obedience to me is the only thing that matters. I really don't care how insecure you are. Stop looking at what people will say or do. Just remember that I'm right here with you. I wonder if that's a prophetic word for somebody today. Jeremiah wasn't just obedient to God for a year or two. He didn't move on when sowing into concrete didn't yield any visible fruit. He wasn't tick tocking moves of God and this hopping over there and here and there to send some testimonies to his newsletter audience. His ministry spanned four decades. He didn't proclaim promises of prosperity or comfort or a cliche in charismatic circles today that everyone's just generically always on the edge of breakthrough. I feel like I've been on the edge of breakthrough for like 25 years. What does that even mean? (laughs) It's exhausting being on the edge of breakthrough. (laughs) Can we resonate? What does that even mean? Why are there so many walls in the Christian life, and why do I need to knock them down and break through them? Oh, it's light relief, isn't it? I'm so glad that you can relate to that. He didn't walk around doling out feel-good prophecies in a nation completely divided against itself. Oh, dear, getting close to home now. Peace, peace, they say, where there is no peace. Peace. While false prophets were doling out feel-good, ear-tingling prophecies, Jeremiah stood the ground. And what did he do? He called God's people to commit to a long life in exile. In 29, chapter 29, he said to them this. He said, "'Build houses and settle down. "'Plant gardens and eat what they produce. "'Marry and have sons and daughters. "'Obedient one. "'Well done, God, "'Increase in number there. "'Do not decrease.'" Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Reciprocal blessing. We often forget that those words were written to a people who had been forced into exile and who were really dealing with, far from being on the edge of breakthrough, on the edge of breakdown. You only need to read some of the Psalms around smashing kids' heads against rocks to realize some undealt-with disappointment and anger issues that these exiles were carrying. But what was Jeremiah's prophetic word for them, for their calling and their unique contribution to the world? Well, it was, cultivate shalom at the apex of despair. Sound epic? Epic. Pretty ordinary. Overwhelming? Hardly. How about you? Could you commit your life to cultivating shalom at the apex of despair? Because it involves making home, toiling the earth, cultivating beauty, celebrating love and marriage, bringing up the next generation to know the ways of the Lord. And praying for an administration that you didn't vote for, but under which you now exist. Ouch. (laughs) Throughout all of this, God made two guarantees to Jeremiah, and I believe he's making them to us today. Did you see them back in there? First, Jeremiah would definitely be strongly and maybe even violently opposed. But secondly, that God would be with you following God's calling might not have anything to do with your networks your qualifications 7 years of training to be a medic or a whatever else your talents your education the things that you think are your strengths and that qualify you to be called by God, you know what? It might cost you all of that. God reserves the right to mess you up and waste your life. No one in Mannenberg cares that I'm here today. No one in Manenburg cares about a prayer breakfast in Oklahoma. But what if giving back to God everything that you think qualifies you to be useful for Him is actually the greatest act of worship you could give Him? What if recognizing that your life has up to now been motivated unhealthy amounts by a sense of trying to justify your existence to a world that will never stop trying to pull more and more life out of you. Would you offer your professional credentials to the Lord this morning as an expression of yielding to Him? Some people think that we're called to the seven mountains of prosperity or influence. There's a thing called the seven mountains mandate. I think I get it, but like climbing mountains of influence and power in order to demonstrate the humility of Jesus seems slightly backward to me. (laughs) Okay, I'm just trying to gauge where we're at with this. (laughs) Uh, Okay, let me go a little further then. (laughs) Isaiah chapter 40 tells us how the coming of the Lord will be preceded. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Every mountain will be made low. Every valley will be raised up. And the glory of the Lord will be seen by all mankind. And there'll be an incredulity of this Possible move of God preceded by what mountains being made low and valleys being raised up. And yet so many of us have heard that we need to climb mountains in order to represent Jesus. What if we descended into the valleys of society? What if we, rather than trying to take up power, gave it away? What would the seven mountains of society be? Old folks' homes, psychiatric wards, slums, informal settlements, the addicted, those without homes, refugees. Can you imagine the prophetic authority the church would carry if we had a seven valleys mandate rather than a seven mountains mandate? Can you imagine the glory of the Lord being declared and the shalom, the nothing missing, nothing broken of heaven coming on earth like never before? Can you imagine the glory of God being revealed to those exhausted with this weight of feeling they needed to show how successful and powerful they are? Because at the end of the day, and I'll finish with this, it all comes down to following revelation over strategy. I forgot about my slides. Could I get the band up? I'm sure it's been said before, but this is where we emotionally manipulate you. We've reached, we've, we've reached the climax of my talk. I've got one more smackdown I'm about to bring. We're gonna get plinky-plunky on the keys. If a couple of you could cry, that would look great for the live feed. Okay, there you go, perfect. I say that just to clear the air. This is not to manipulate anyone. But I want us to focus in on this final point because I think so often we're fed by webinars and leaders and online this and that and how to un- F yourself and the subtle art of not giving an F and Atomic Habits and 5am Club and all of these sorts of books that make us promises they couldn't possibly keep. We don't need more strategy, church. We need revelation from the throne of God. And what I mean by this is that, what that is this. It would be wrong to think that strategy is unkingdom just because it's a boardroom buzzword. But... While strategy and vision are good, we don't want to spend our lives chasing good ideas that are not God's unique calling on us. Plenty of people will do that. People will spend their entire life chasing good ideas, making a shed load of money, but that wasn't God's calling on their life. Let them do that. We are to seek revelation. And out of that revelation should emerge our strategy. So the two are not opposite. But that's a world away from coming up with our own plan and just asking the Lord to bless it. Jerusalem is six miles away from Bethlehem. Jerusalem at the time of Jesus was a center of trade and power. It was bustling with activity, with political power. It was a place of pilgrimage with crowds flocking to the temple annually for sacrifices. It was where King Herod had a lavish palace as a reminder to anyone who needed to know who was really in power here. Power. Power. Popularity, external religious devotion, political influence. All the shiny things we're still tempted by today. They're epitomized by the Jerusalem of Jesus' day. Okay, do we get that? That was Jerusalem in a nutshell. And where was it that the wise men got to? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They got to Jerusalem how? Following a star. Combining their knowledge of astronomy with their devotion to truth. Strategy, science, and perseverance served them pretty well. Would you agree? They came a long, long way. And their part in the Christmas story shows us that you can get relatively close to God by honestly searching and having a good strategy however research, study discipline can get you to Jerusalem but only revelation will get you to Bethlehem Bethlehem with it's vulnerable God in human flesh with this little baby crying, anticipating his future suffering Bethlehem is unique and the emblem of what is unique about our faith strategy will get you to Jerusalem but only revelation will get you to Bethlehem if you're starving eating food is a good idea but Jesus famously rebuked Satan saying that humanity cannot live on bread alone but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God revelation. Food will sustain you in the long term it's a good in the short term it's a good short-term strategy but revelation from the mouth of God is the only thing that will sustain us long term. So can I get you to stand? Because I want to ask you a question. If you feel comfortable to do so, would you just maybe close your eyes? And I want to ask you a question that I want you to submit to God. Lord, how do we make sure that rather settling in rather than settling in Jerusalem, so close but oh so far from you, content with the benefits of power and popularity? How do we get to Bethlehem? Jesus, would you show me how to get my life from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? Lord, would you show me how to go beyond strategy and good ideas? Would you show me, Lord God, what it means to prioritize your revelation over and above any strategy? Let's just wait on the Lord for a couple of minutes. Absolutely no pressure to move on. I feel like there's a spirit of conviction coming on some of us. Where if we were really candid, we would acknowledge... Our motivations have bordered on sub kingdom, an unhealthy reliance on the opinions of others, how we're seen. Renting an impressive looking Airbnb in Jerusalem rather than that dusty six-mile trail to a smelly stable in Bethlehem. Others of us have maybe felt that following Jesus wholeheartedly is synonymous with carrying a heavy weight of expectation that others have for us. Maybe it's parents projecting their own missed opportunities onto their children. Maybe you are one of those children this morning and are just like, no, I'm a square peg and I don't fit in that round hole. Holy Spirit, would you come, counselor, liberator, show us where we have fallen for the expectations of others over the easy yoke of Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Equally, there are those of us who, maybe you're watching that video from Mannenberg of Tree of Life and do you haven't heard a word of what I've said since then because something gripped you. Maybe you thought, yeah, you know, I I tried something like that once. It ended in disaster. I invited people into my home. I gave my life up for others in various ways. I was used and let down. I was betrayed and slandered. And I haven't quite recovered. I believe the Father's healing your heart right now that potentially where any venture, actually, be it business or ministry, something didn't work out and it all went belly up and you made a vow in your heart that maybe no one else even knows about never again or to settle for the conventional and your heart that day became hard the opposite of a kind of curiosity to the next chapter of God's calling on your life, it became hard and God actually became kind of arm's length You come to church because, well, you couldn't not. You live in Oklahoma after all. But if you're honest with yourself, God is an arm's length deity, not an intimate father. So in the quietness of this moment, would you give to him in lament whatever that supposedly failed venture was and would you let him remodel it and redeem it because he's saying your greatest earthly pain is going to become your life message if you give it to me that pain you've been transferring onto others all these years give it to me I will transform it but all you have to do is give it to him Stay in this place for a couple more minutes and just wait on the Spirit. There are those of us who know we were born to pioneer. Apostles and prophets and who believe we are actually carrying and maybe even sitting on a a revelation or a calling from heaven, but a feeling just overwhelmed by the connotations of what following that wholeheartedly would mean for our lives. We sing about yielding everything to God, but deep, deep down, we're aware that there is a dark, closed room full of hairy, scary dreams that we know the Lord has given us, and yet we don't want to go there. I believe this is your sign. Open the door and dust off some of those things, and this is not for just the, quote, youth or young people. What are the things that you daren't start out of fear, but really feel convicted is your unique calling. Far from making a vow to limit God, would you make a vow to him this morning? At the very least to bring it up over lunch with your spouse or your friend. to agree to just discern once again maybe this is the season for that. This is not a reckless knee jerk pack my bags and I'm off against everyone's advice. This is just allowing the spirit to massage my heart and consider once again that which I have felt for years, I'm to pursue. And of course, there'll be a whole bunch of others. If I haven't specifically named the direct scenario, you are ruminating around in your head and your heart. That's my bad, not yours. The Father's at work. And there'll be people here who will pray with you, pray for you. Don't leave without making a mark in the sand this morning. In Jesus' name.
0: on your way out the door. First thing is, uh, it would only be faithful to the message Pete's given us to know that this is beyond a moment. This is about God building our lives. And so some of us might be experiencing some stuckness, some pain. I want you to consider our sozo prayer where the Lord can speak to you that would help you can just go online to our website, sign up for it, to hear God. Maybe you can't even hear that he's got anything positive uh, in your story. And sometimes we get stuck. And so Jesus wants to free us. That's not the life you're relegated to. Another thing is, our Destiny Finders class is about trying to hear God's revelation in the midst of knowing what your your skills and your story is. So you might consider that. The other thing is this, um we have copies of Pete's book here that in longer, more teased-out form, you can hear the central thread of this message. And then he covers several different ways to look at this. It's really, really productive. It rarely do I finish a book, I'll just tell you, because it's just after well, while I'm like bored. It's, it's not I couldn't put his down because of that. And he doesn't he doesn't know I'm saying this, by the way i 'll be honest with you i 't I, I, I knew Pete was famous was like i don 't know i 've never heard him, so I, I, I read your book to know you know like your friends like you here 's what 's funny: The West offs have been going to South Africa for years, and right now the West offs are in Manenburg, South Africa, while Pete is here they 're working with their team their team right now. But I was like, this guy has got to be part of what we do. He He's he's speaking our language and what the Lord, I believe, is speaking to us. So pick up a book, buy it on Amazon. And, and I, I do know this. If you buy it on Amazon or a review, it goes up the, the charts. So I'm just saying that if you don't want to get it here, do it there. The other thing is this. We've got a bunch of OriU, TU, TCC students. We wanted particularly for those who are graduating this year we've bought enough copies for you just to take one okay because I feel like Pete's embodying is so critical we do a lot of college graduate recovery here and I'm serious we do because expectation and reality there's a great deal of dissonance to meet the life that Jesus has for you he has a brilliant life for you but it is about going into valleys usually and that's so nice to know that you're not screwing up. You're not failing. He's so pleased with you to learn stability, learn faithfulness, learn revelation. And, and see, live life so that you're in your 70s and on fire. Fruitful, productive through a lifetime. Sound good? All right. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, if college graduates, you could it just just say, I'm, I'm about to graduate from college, and they'll give you one. I'm, yeah. I didn't think through this last part. Um, and then if you're not, can you buy one? Because I think Pete would appreciate that. And if they're all gone, then go online and make a purchase. All right, so remember Baptism, Fireside, Destiny Finders, sign up. There was a in thir- the Pete's. In the book, huh? Oikos. Can we put an oikos map slide on there? I love it, man, when other people tell me how to do my job. Because I don't do it that well, honestly. Uh, if you're new to believers, we pray for those in our lives who are far from God. So we call it our oikos, it's a Greek word for household. Oh man. Could you feel the spirit when we were praying? We were just talking about going to the least and the lost and the last and forgotten. This is where people get to have hope. And so let's bring those people to our mind in a relational circle who are far from God. And let's, some of us just got to persist. You don't have to feel a thing when you do it, but just persisting in prayer today. Let's pray this together. Lord, I pray for the people in my life who are far from you. Deliver them from the evil one. Bring them into your family and help them to grow as your disciples. Amen. Love you guys. Have a wonderful week.